Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hi there, I'm Lawrence Delalio, host of the Evening Standard Rugby Podcast brought to you in partnership with QBE Business Insurance. The show is available to listen to now and across the Six Nations as Europe's elite go head-to-head in rugby's oldest international competition. Each week, we'll be looking at the QBE predictor, which forecasts the results of each round of matches. QBE is one of the world's leading insurers, and they will help your business build resilience through risk management and insurance solutions. Subscribe now and download wherever you get your podcasts. As always, thanks for listening. ES Audio. From the Evening Standard in London, I'm Mark Blunden and this is The Leader. As we've seen uh, at Westminster, uh, the herd instinct is powerful. When the herd moves, it moves. And my friends, in politics, no one is remotely indispensable. After more than 50 MPs resigned in a painful 24 hours for Boris Johnson, he's going, going, gone. It is clearly now the will of the Parliamentary Conservative Party that there should be a new leader of that party and therefore a new Prime Minister. And I've agreed with Sir Graham Brady, the chairman of our backbench MPs, that the process of choosing that new leader should begin now. That was the outgoing Prime Minister at the ominous Downing Street lectern at lunchtime and it's two years and 348 days since Johnson became resident of Britain's most famous address, the same as Neville Chamberlain. And while his innings weren't as long as Theresa May or David Cameron, he does beat Gordon Brown and Sir Anthony Eden. In the last few days I've tried to persuade my colleagues that it would be eccentric to change governments when we're delivering so much. So what, or who, did for the scandal-riddled PM in the end? Well, the knife was certainly twisted by Nadim Zahawi, who called for Johnson to go just a day after being made Chancellor. The pounds had a bounce, and while the Conservatives seek to anoint a successor, Labour are calling for an election to let the British public decide for themselves. The country's crying out for change. We've been stuck with a government that's not been functioning in the middle of a cost-of-living crisis. And now changing the person at the top of the Conservative Party is not going to make any difference whatsoever. People want change. A fresh start for Britain. So who's the best person to get our country back on an even keel? We're joined by the Evening Standard's Deputy Political Editor David Bond to examine today's bombshell developments. What a morning. What a 24 hours, 36 hours. 
ever since Sajid Javid tweeted out that he was resigning as health secretary, it's moved so incredibly fast. And we've been through so many different phases of this story. I mean, last night, you had the extraordinary situation where the prime minister was sort of in his bunker, refusing to go, sacked Michael Gove, which was one of the most extraordinary things uh, you could imagine. You know, this fantastic metaphor from the Conservative MP, Tim Lawton, who said, you know, rather than take the whiskey and the revolver and turn it on himself, he drank the whiskey and turned it back on Michael Gove. And he was absolutely determined to fight and to face down those members of the cabinet who had gone to see him and, and to tell him that the time was up, pointing to the mandate he had directly from the British people, this extraordinary briefing from a number 10 source that, you know, Gove was a snake and all this sort of language. It was really, really incredible. So this morning, you know, we sort of turned up the standard political team here at Westminster thinking, you know, you don't imagine he can stay, but, you know, it's Boris Johnson and, you know, anything is possible. He's such an unconventional prime minister and such a maverick. But the resignation started before we'd even got to our desks, all culminating in that amazing letter from Nadim Zahawi, who just 24 hours earlier had been on the media round defending the Prime Minister and talking about how he'd been put in place to help grow the economy and dangling the prospect of tax cuts to try and win support from the Tory backbenches on the right. And then he's writing a letter saying, I've actually thought it's time for you to go on Treasury-headed notepaper. David, we spoke about those grey-suited Tory grandees yesterday. Who are they and what was their role in the PM's decision-making? It's really sort of senior members of the Conservative Party, party grandees, and members of this 1922 backbench committee, which is the Parliamentary Conservative Party and really wields quite a lot of power. And it has fallen to them, but also to senior members of the Cabinet, again, to tell the Prime Minister that actually they've lost support of the Conservative Party and that um, they should consider quitting. Now, compared to previous examples of this, Boris Johnson did seem determined to face it down. In fact, we had this briefing that, uh, again, another amazing briefing from Number 10 last night, that he had called Graham Brady, who is the, the chair of the 1922 committee, that he had called Graham Brady's bluff uh, and that they would have to change their rules to allow another confidence vote in less than 12 months, which they were in the process of doing, but they hadn't actually done that yet. That was going to be the sort of next step next week if he had refused to go. But clearly, you know, he finally sensed that um, really the gravity was against him and that he had to quit. Any word on what the atmosphere has been like in number 10 this morning? Government is, I mean, it might be overstating it to say it is not functioning, but it is definitely wobbling. And he has tried to offer and this may be may have been another factor in his decision to to resign finally he was probably struggling to fill a lot of those posts and there were probably senior civil servants saying to the prime minister look there is a genuine risk the government could be paralyzed here so i think speed is of the essence and of course now a lot of the concern in the conservative party is that he has said all right i will go but i'll stay in place until october now, so even boris johnson's resignation isn't going according to plan because now there is a real fear that he can stay in place for months and i think that that just becomes to a lot of conservative mps completely untenable they want him to go and they want him to go now and I think that's why you're probably seeing, you know, sort of the thing being speeded up. He will also want to make sure that on his way out of the building, he tries to start framing his legacy, because when all is said and done, he will be the prime minister who can point to having delivered Brexit. And he will want to 
trumpet his other achievements, the vaccine rollout and the UK support for Ukraine following the invasion by Russia. So I think that will be part of his thinking now, now that he has been persuaded to go, to try and go with some dignity, but also to try and go with an attempt to try and frame his legacy. What's your take on the physical and emotional toll this has all taken on Johnson? In photographs, he's been looking pretty knackered recently. It's only a week ago I was in Spain at the in Madrid at the NATO summit and Boris Johnson had been away by the time of his um, end of summit press conference on the Thursday. And, you know, I have to say he looked tired, but he looked in very good form. You know, he looked like he was enjoying being on the sort of world stage and he'd had a good period on the road at the G7 and at the Commonwealth Heads of Government in Kigali. And it's, it's just very hard to believe that a week later, just a week later, he's gone. Even though for months we've been sort of building up to this point, it just seems incredible that actually it's it's happened. And yes, he's definitely, the toll must have been taken on him and his family. There's, there, there can't be any question about that. It is an incredibly difficult job in any circumstances, but to do it in the way that he has done it, you know, constantly as over the last, well, six, seven months, eight months, nine months, constantly facing questions over his integrity, his leadership, facing challenges from restless backbenchers. But he is always someone who's been up for the fight, as we saw yesterday. And I think he's a person who thrives on that kind of competition. And so, you know, yes, I think it has taken its toll, but, you know, he is that sort of character. And finally, David, what's your view on the current leadership situation? What's so fascinating about this is how wide open this race is. Of course, when Boris Johnson got the job, there really was only one contender in town. When he took over from Theresa May, it had been in the offing for ages. And even back in 2016, when Theresa May got the job, arguably that should have been Boris Johnson's moment as well. It was only the incredible story around Michael Gove, Gove's betrayal that really sort of did for him then. Otherwise, you might have expected him to get the leadership at that point. So, you know, the time of Boris Johnson was always sort of coming and now he's out of the way. You are removing the biggest figure in British politics for the last decade. No question about that. And there is a vacuum to fill. And I think one of the things that's been so difficult for the Conservative Party through this has been to try and find a plan B. There's no obvious successor. There's lots of people who definitely are good contenders and will be seen as such in the Conservative Party. But with the public, you know, there is no other politician who cuts through just like Boris Johnson. There's no one who could have done what he has done. This kind of coalition of northern traditional working class, former industrial heartlands who always voted Labour, coming together with traditional Tory heartlands in the south and the east of the country to form this, as it turns out, a very fragile coalition, but nevertheless, one that won him an 80-seat majority at the 2019 general election. And it's just difficult to see who that sort of person is in the current uh, runners and riders, but it's a wide open race. And the Conservative Party, I think, will want to choose someone who will have integrity will be the key word. Almost all of the resignations that we've seen over the last 24 hours have mentioned the word integrity and values. So I think it would be strange if they then chose someone who perhaps can't live up to those values. They will want a safe pair of hands, for sure. The favourite at the moment, if you believe the bookies, is uh, Rishi Sunak. Now, a month, two months ago, his future in politics looked finished because of all this stuff about uh, non-dom status and his wife's wealth and his wealth and is he too rich to be prime minister? Now he's back at the top. 
You've got Liz Truss, you've got Ben Wallace, who's seen as having a good war as defence secretary. Could he be a contender to take over? Sajid Javid. There's so many different names that could emerge during this contest. David Bond there. Go to standard.co.uk to get more analysis and breaking news from our political team or read the Evening Standard newspaper. After the break, we speak to our columnist, Aisha Hazarika. He was lazy, incompetent, immoral, corrupt and a liar. Welcome back. How did we get to where we are now? And what has Boris Johnson left behind? The Evening Standards journalists and commentators have been covering the saga throughout his time at Downing Street. Our columnist Aisha Hazarika has been one of his biggest critics. She spoke to David Marsland. To be honest, Aisha, I'm not entirely sure where to start with this one. There's just been so much coming out in the last couple of days. At the time of his resignation... There were still more ministerial resignations coming out. I mean, this is pretty much the definition of chaos, isn't it? I mean, I remember that very famous tweet that David Cameron posted in the run-up to the the 2015 general election (laughs) campaign, which said Britain faces an, an inescapable choice, a Conservative government, or chaos with Ed Miliband. Well, excuse me, Britain has become a political bin fire under the Conservative Party over the last 12 years. I mean, it is absolutely extraordinary. I mean, when you take a step back, the fact that we have all just felt a palpable sense of relief that we were not have to going to have to get the army in to go in and literally prize this man out of Downing Street is quite something. And I think this has moved from be, just being beyond a political crisis to a crisis of democracy and a genuine constitutional crisis. I mean, the question that many people are asking is, how can there be a functional government when so many ministers have resigned from government? I mean, this is uncharted territory. He says he's going to hold on until the autumn. Lots of people, including some Conservatives, want him to leave right now and put a caretaker prime minister in. Is that the best option or should we have that longer dare i say stable transition no he he should not be in downing street a moment longer i'm afraid he is not a fit or proper person to still be in office and i think the anxiety that a lot of people including many conservatives feel is he can't be trusted and what damage would he do to try and save his own skin in this remaining time because he still would be in charge. And I think there is a growing feeling that that is not the right thing for the country. Indeed, it would be dangerous for the country. Has he damaged the Conservative Party? I mean, to his supporters, he delivered the things he said he would. He delivered Brexit. He got the country through the pandemic. He's been praised for his work with Ukraine. There's a lot there that he did achieve as Prime Minister. But is this ending more damaging than all he did? Okay, David, I'm going to challenge you on that narrative. He is not himself going to war with uh, President Putin. Yes, the, the, the UK has stepped up, but I think any sane, good prime minister would have would have offered help. In the same time, he's also broken a manifesto commitment to adequately fund our arms forces. 
and the the homes for Ukraine scheme has been uh, an absolute scandal. I will concede that you know he has done some good on Ukraine. In terms of the pandemic, he made some absolutely catastrophic decisions at the beginning. Um, many people who lost loved ones will never forgive him for the delay in taking some of that action, which is why the United Kingdom does have a, a high death toll. Let's not also forget that he and his colleagues and his family and friends were partying in Downing Street, breaking the law, as the rest of us were not saying goodbye to our loved ones. And in terms of the, the vaccine rollout, yes, Britain did well on the vaccine rollout, but so did lots of other developed countries. And he wasn't one man going around jabbing lots of people. That was done through a network of community NHS hospital um, hospitals and the whole you know framework of the NHS. And in terms of getting Brexit done, we have not got Brexit done because we are literally about to enter some kind of trade war with the EU over Northern Ireland. And of course, this morning, the Northern Ireland secretary has resigned. And I'm afraid this man's lying is probably one of the reasons why Brexit got over the line. I know so many people, I speak to so many people all across the country when I go around, you know, doing speeches and and, and, in, and doing events and things where people, particularly, you know, business people will come up to me and say, I voted for Brexit and I voted for Boris Johnson and I wish I could go back in time. I feel really misled. My business has suffered and I think there's going to be grave consequences. So I really push back and I think the media has been very lazy with this narrative. They've just sort of swallowed the lines that have come out from the, the diminishing group of Boris Johnson loyalists. We have to do some critical thinking here. What Boris Johnson was good at is deceiving people. He was the ultimate salesman. You know, he was the kind of guy who was like, here, I'm going to be the sale of the century. No doubt he had charisma. No doubt he was very different. But I think some of us were not fooled by the kind of ha 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 bonhomie. He's such a great guy. He's Mr. Fun Times. I'm afraid history, and many of us said this at the time, but history will show him to have been pretty much the worst prime minister we have ever seen. He was lazy, incompetent, immoral, corrupt, and a liar. And I'm afraid he has done a lot of damage to this country and our standing in the world. We did say that at the time. I remember you coming on this podcast and being very concerned about Boris Johnson becoming prime minister. Was this ending inevitable? I think what's really interesting is I remember the night of the 2019 general election when the results came through and he got that stunning victory. And I remember thinking, gosh, an 80 seat majority, because I've worked in government and I've worked in, in opposition. And when you've been in opposition for a long time, that kind of majority is the stuff of dreams. And I sort of naively thought that, um, being prime minister with that majority will have a civilizing effect on Boris Johnson because you can do a lot of good in the world. And I think for some people becoming a minister and certainly becoming prime minister, high office does sort of should make you want to be a better person. It should make you want to do good things. So I thought he is going to actually maybe be better than I've given him credit for, particularly with a good civil service behind him, 
um, you know, he first of all came out with some quite good soundings. He said, look, I recognize a lot of people have lent me their vote for the first time. Any Labour voters, I want to honor that. I want you to not regret lending me your vote. Um, Leveling up was a very, very admirable agenda. But then nothing happened. He could have been a successful prime minister with that majority. You could he could have been a great prime minister. But the thing that stopped him was himself. The thing that stopped him was the lies, the laziness, the incompetence, the not really wanting to apply himself to to anything and always reaching for the sort of lazy culture war divisive option at any point. The other thing which he massively spectacularly failed on was a duty to promote talent and ability above slavish loyalty. When you have a majority that big, it's your duty to put the best people into positions of power so you can govern to your best for the whole of the country. And he did not do that. He put in second, third rate politicians who would just be a joke in anyone else's you know, world because they were slavishly loyal to him. And we are really seeing the profound consequences of, of that now. You can read more from Aisha Hazarika in the Evening Standard newspaper or online at standard.co.uk where you'll find our live blog bringing you all the latest developments. The Leader podcast is back at 4pm tomorrow.